You're listening to Be Health Connected, a podcast by the St. Louis Area Business Health Coalition. Your host for today's episode is Annie Fitzgerald, BHC Manager of Wellbeing Strategy and Health Solutions. Hello, I'm Annie Fitzgerald, and welcome back to the BHC's Be Health Connected podcast. On January 30th, 2023, the Biden administration declared its intent to end the national emergency and public health emergency declarations related to the pandemic on May 11th of this year. With this news has come many questions surrounding the future of COVID-19 testing, vaccination, and treatment. As we await further federal, state, and local guidance, we're joined by a local infectious disease physician from Washington University and chief quality officer for BGC Healthcare to discuss possible implications of the president's recent announcement and the future public health response to COVID-19. Dr. Hilary Babcock, thank you so much for being here. Sure, thank you, happy happy to be here. So to get us started, can you tell us a little bit about what exactly an emergency declaration is and how such a declaration impacts both national and local public health strategies? Sure. So um, as noted, I'm a physician, not a lawyer or a a public policy expert. So I probably don't know all of the details about exactly what goes into an emergency declaration and who can declare it and um, all of those things. But from a public health perspective, um, a public health emergency declaration largely allows um, state and local governments to um, act in ways that they maybe wouldn't act in the absence of such an emergency. And from a public health and healthcare perspective, usually what this means is granting increased flexibility. So that flexibility could be about um, things such as Medicaid eligibility and needing to recertify your Medicaid eligibility and how often that happens. It might be around the requirements for having a telehealth program and whether you have to have an in-person visit first before you can start having a telehealth relationship with a patient as a provider. Um, For hospitals during an emergency such as COVID, it allowed some flexibility in terms of space allocation. So are there spaces that we don't usually use for actually providing healthcare to patients that we could use during an emergency when we needed to, when we had that many more patients, as long as it was safe for patients and we had a process to be sure that it could be used safely, we would be allowed to do that under a waiver that's possible under these types of emergencies. Um, Another example might be around um, charting requirements and documentation requirements in healthcare settings that some of those might be um, loosened or or lessened a little bit to allow more time for staff to take care of more patients when they were overwhelmed with all the patients that we had. The other thing that it can do is um, support data requirements um, and and support the requirement for healthcare systems and for public health agencies to report a lot of different data elements that help the federal government and the CDC and local and state governments as well to really see what is happening and be able to count cases and count tests and know where we have shortages of personal protective equipment, of ventilators, um, a lot of the things that we've sort of forgotten that we were really struggling with um, at the beginning of the pandemic. So largely these um, declarations provide flexibility for 
for these different organizations to react in a time of crisis? And so, you know, in some ways, I feel like what was once considered the new normal is kind of our normal. And so there's likely going to be changes due to the expiration of these emergency declarations that, that you know, will take some time to prepare for. Um, what kind of policies might be affected by, by the expiration of these declarations in terms of testing, vaccination, um, and, and maybe treatment access? Sure. Um, so one thing that's a little bit confusing is that there's both the, the public health emergency and then there is also the funding that was allocated through congressional allocations um, to be used for specific programs. Um, and, and some of these things are going to be ending at around the same time. So some things we think are tied to the public health emergency, but might actually be because Congress didn't allocate more funds um, for a specific program. But in the short term, what this will mean if we sort of take those different categories in order. Around vaccination, um, for at least for the next few months, probably won't have a lot of impact. The federal government bought a lot of vaccine from the vaccine manufacturers and has been able to then provide that vaccine for free to the free to the receiver um, of the vaccines through pharmacies and through healthcare systems um, and public health departments and federally qualified health centers um, across the country. And that really was incredibly helpful in driving uptake um, and access to the vaccine. Um, slowly, this will transition to being used more like a, the other commercial products and other commercial vaccines. It will have a price that is um, set by the a manufacturer and not um, necessarily negotiated by the government. So when the vaccines transition to a more commercial model that is more typical of our other vaccines, um, then there will be higher costs associated with acquiring those vaccines. From a patient perspective, um, most um, healthcare, uh, most health insurance companies um, and, and Medicare and Medicaid provide vaccines at no cost sharing to the patient. Um, so there may be increased cost taken on by the um, insurance company um, and by Medicare and Medicaid, but not directly um, flowing to the person. For um, completely uninsured people, however, there will be a barrier and there will be increased cost associated with that kind of access. And some of the programs that have facilitated access um, for the uninsured um, may also be more limited with some of the funding shortfalls that are coming. But I think for patients, largely vaccine access and, and payment will, will not be very strongly affected. From a testing perspective, um, when the public health emergency ends, the requirement for private health insurance companies to cover COVID-19 testing without any cost sharing will also end. Um, so Companies can still choose, and I think that everyone is sort of hoping that they will still choose to cover most of that testing um, without cost sharing to, um, to the patient, um, but, but it is a choice. So it may become something that um, starts to incur some cost to a patient. Um, Medicare, I think, um, and Medicaid, there, there are a lot of details about how things may be different within each program that we probably don't need to get into um, in a lot of detail. But but there will be some changes in availability um, of testing and cost sharing um, for testing. Um, the government can still choose to make available tests that you can request to have mailed to you by the um, Postal Service, depending on supply and, and feasibility, they can still choose to do that and may still make those available. Um, 
But going to the pharmacy and, and saying that, you know, through your insurance or through Medicare, you can get free over-the-counter tests probably will not be available um, going forward. In terms of medications and treatments for COVID is sort of a similar story. So those medications, again, have largely been paid for by the government and made available at no cost. And they will also, in the absence of the um, public health emergency and without additional congressional funding, will transition into a more commercial model where there will be coverage that will depend on your, um, on your specific company and its specific plan, how much you might have to pay um, as a patient to be able to access those medications. So it's kind of a long answer because it's kind of a complicated <laughs> situation. And, and as you said, some of it um, is still evolving and, and we don't know exactly like when supplies that have already been purchased will run out, when exactly will chargeback mechanisms become, um, you know, really come into play. Right. Well, and that's where I think it's it's nice that we have a little bit of this grace period, you know, to to try and, you know, figure out, um, you know, what that process might look like, what things might look like in the next couple months, and then for employers to have some time to prepare kind of how they um, will decide to cover things like testing and vaccination and those, those um, COVID-19 treatments. So with, with the ending of these declarations, does this mean that COVID-19 is slowing down? Um, what are we currently seeing in our community in terms of diagnose, diagnosis rates and the, the variants that are, are currently kind of around in our community? Sure. Um, so case numbers um, in our region are, are still elevated, but are really lower than they have been in, in some time and really a lot lower if you think back to um, January or February of 2022, when we were in the midst of the Omicron surge and we're really having our highest numbers that we had had really throughout the pandemic. Um, right now, numbers of cases in the community are, are again, they're, they're still elevated, but they're fairly stable and they're not super high. Um, our hospitalization numbers are also um, lower than they've been in a long time. Um, we track our employee illness numbers um, and they are also lower than they've been in a long time. Um, so there, in many ways, things are looking a lot better. There is still COVID around. People are still positive for COVID, being tested for COVID, um, getting hospitalized with COVID. Um, so that is still happening, um, but but it is better than it has been, which which is good news. It is a little hard to know exactly what will happen over the rest of the year. I don't think personally, I, I continually have wished that I had a crystal ball over the last three years. Still, no one can give me a good crystal ball. Um, but we haven't um, we haven't seen big surges with the more recent variants that have moved through our region. And the most recent variant we've been tracking is the XBB 1.5, and that is probably becoming the dominant variant in our region right around now. We are seeing maybe a little uptick in numbers, but certainly nothing like what we've seen with Omicron. And that's similar to what we've seen in other parts of the country. As this variant has come through, we've seen some increases in numbers, but really not kind of the overwhelming numbers that we've seen before. And that probably has a lot to do with the um, changes in immunity in our communities. So the people who have been vaccinated and boosted, people who have had COVID, some people who have had COVID multiple times, all of that contributes to the immunity. That means that you're less likely to get very ill if you get COVID, 
less likely to get COVID, less likely to end up in the hospital if you get COVID. So all of those things um, are better. I do anticipate that we will continue to have some surges over time. We will probably have another surge at least in the fall or winter. We have had summer surges in the past couple of summers, so we may have another surge in the summer too when we really just have to track the numbers and watch what's happening. Um, it's kind of nice to be in the middle of the country. We can usually sort of see these surges coming um, from the coast and sort of moving across the country. So we do usually get a little bit of a preview of what things might look like. Well, we certainly appreciate our public health professionals here in the community that are acting as, as much of a crystal ball as you can <laughs> and, and looking at the data and, and the numbers and kind of projecting what, what we might see in the future. In terms of recommendations for the community, um, including individuals and organizations, what, what advice would you give them as we enter this next phase of the pandemic? Um, so I, I do say one thing the same in every single interview that I do, um, but vaccination is still critically important. And if you haven't been vaccinated yet, you should get vaccinated. And even if you have had COVID before, um, you should still get vaccinated. So it clearly provides benefit whether you've had COVID or not had COVID, definitely decreases your risk of getting COVID and markedly decreases your risk of ending up in the hospital or getting very ill or dying from COVID. Um, and so that is always a benefit. And if you haven't gotten your updated booster yet, or you haven't gotten vaccinated at all yet, should definitely get it. Um, employers and other organizations should continue really to encourage their employees to get vaccinated um, and anything they can do to make that easy, accessible, um, inexpensive, all of those things will really help with that. Um, Otherwise, generally, I think people should follow sort of good respiratory hygiene practices in general. So stay home if you're sick, um, wash your hands a lot. Um, if you've been around someone who's very who's been sick with a respiratory illness, maybe you stay home for a little bit to be sure you're not gonna infect someone else. And masks do have real benefits in some of those settings. So if you've been exposed to someone, you're feeling fine, but you don't know if you're gonna get sick, you could wear a mask at work for a few days. Be sure that if you do get sick, you didn't expose other people at work. Um, and if you're in crowded places where you don't really know the people and you don't know if they're sick or if they're vaccinated or what their um, immunity is like, then wearing a mask in those settings is still a good um, safety measure. I still wear a mask on airplanes. I, I may always wear a mask on airplanes. You sit next to people, people are coughing and hacking all around you. <laughs> I just feel better in a mask on an airplane. Um, and, I, and I may just always, um, and depending on how crowded the airport is, I may be wearing a mask in the airport as well. In the same way, it's a crowded indoor space with a lot of people that came from all over and who knows what they have, COVID, flu, RSV, I don't need any of it. So. A mask is a pretty easy way to, to, to not put yourself at risk. So I, I still think there's a good role for masking um, in the right places, in the right settings. Well, certainly, you know, as you stated, I think we've heard heard those those pieces of advice time and time again. And I think, you know, we'll continue to hear it from from um, here on out. And so, you know, it really is sometimes the most simple, simple advice that that is the, the most useful. So we really appreciate your insights today. Um, any parting words for our audience before we end our episode? It's been a long three years. It's not um, over yet, but we are in a better place than we were. So I think things are slowly looking better and we can all keep, keep things moving in the right direction by doing our part. 
Well, thank you once again. We really appreciate your insights and for you taking the time to speak with us today. Um, we look forward to taking these insights and call to actions to our employers and, and continuing to keep them apprised of the updates regarding COVID-19, whether it be emergency declarations or, you know, the diagnosis rates in our area. So again, we, we thank you and thank, thank all the public health professionals here in our community. Um, and I hope you have a great rest of your day. Sure, thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Be Health Connected podcast. For additional episodes or to learn more about employer resources available through the St. Louis Area Business Health Coalition, please visit www.stlbhc.org.